2: This is an apostrophe podcast production.
1: Regret to inform you the rejection podcast at 24 milton hershey had invested the first 6 years of his adult life into a business that failed biographer michael d'antonio Henry Hershey was what you'd call a serial entrepreneur. The problem was, he was serially broke. Over the years, Henry invested in oil wells, perpetual motion machines, farm equipment, livestock remedies, the conversion of livestock fencing into telephone lines, silver mining, picture painting, secondhand junk dealing, and real estate borrowing heavily to fund his ventures, then groveling heavily when creditors came to take it all away. Eventually, Henry met a woman named Fanny Snavely. Fanny came from a wealthy farming family, and in 1856, despite Henry arriving so late he nearly missed the ceremony, the pair tied the knot in rural Pennsylvania. Fanny liked that Henry was a dreamer, but ambitious as he was... A life with her new husband would turn out to be nothing like the stable, shiny upbringing Fanny was accustomed to. Henry's get-rich-quick schemes did nothing but get Fanny panicked quick. So she took it upon herself to make ends meet and keep food on the table. If her husband was a dreamer, Fanny would be a doer. After a long day of churning butter, raising chickens to sell their eggs, and weaving corn brooms, Fanny would strip cows. Meaning, she'd sneak over to neighboring farms after dark and squeeze the last few drops from the dairy cow's already-emptied udders. But when all that wasn't enough to sustain the newlyweds, Fanny's brothers would come to the rescue, making sure, at the very least, their sister had a roof over her head and farmland under her feet. But soon, they had more than Fanny to worry about. In 1857... Fanny and Henry welcomed a son. They'd name him Milton Snavely Hershey. In the fall of 1862, five year old Milton Hershey was enrolled at a local school in Lancaster. But as biographer Michael D'Antonio tells the story, right off the bat, young Hershey wasn't happy. He didn't like school. He had trouble reading, a fact that frustrated his father. You see, Henry had lofty aspirations for his only son. He wanted him to become a writer, a dream Henry once had harbored himself many moons ago, but, true to form, never saw to fruition. To Henry, an education was the golden ticket. To Fanny, everything one needed to know could be learned through, quote, "...hard work on good land." If her son became, say, a respectable farmer like her father, she'd believe him to be a success. Over the following years, the family moved around quite a bit, usually following Henry as he chased the latest mining or oil craze, forcing Hershey to switch schools six times. And what was already a dwindling interest in school for the boy soon became an outright refusal to attend. By fourth grade, Hershey announced he was done. He could spell, he could add and subtract, for the most part. The 12-year-old was ready to join the workforce. But his father wasn't ready to abandon his life's goal of having a son whose life's goal it was to become a writer. So he got young Hershey an apprenticeship at a publishing company. But it didn't go exactly as Henry imagined. Hershey didn't like the job his father arranged for him. And, not wanting to be an author, writer, or publisher of any kind, he decided to take matters into his own hands. One afternoon, Hershey accidentally on purpose dropped his hat into the printing press. And let's just say that took care of that. His father was furious. But Hershey got another job, this time of his mom's choosing at a confectionery called Royer's Ice Cream Parlor and Garden. There was an assortment of pastries, a variety of ice cream flavors, and there was a candy counter. Hershey was put in charge of doing dishes, serving customers, and delivering citrusy confections to sweet-toothed locals. It was a busy little establishment. And the now 15-year-old Hershey worked his way into the heart of the proprietor. Even as a teen, Hershey was reliable and competent. So Mr. Royer started giving him more important tasks. Soon, Hershey was learning how to make the ice cream and make the candy. He learned it took not only great skill and precision to run a confectionery, ensuring the temperature of the boiling syrup was just right, and roasting peanuts to the perfect level of toastiness. But it also took great strength. Churning vats of cream to the ideal consistency was not for the faint of bicep. But the biggest thing teenaged Hershey learned was that he was happy. A fact that incensed his father. To Henry Hershey, candy making was a, quote, woman's job. But it didn't matter. This was a sweet gig, one Hershey was not prepared to sabotage. Over the next four years, Hershey learned not only how to make candy, he learned how to sell it. Mr. Royer taught his apprentice the business of the business, about purchasing, pricing, inventory, hiring, retaining, and attracting customers. It was an invaluable education for Hershey. But eventually, Hershey turned 18 years old and found himself looking at a fifth year at the parlor. The truth was he'd learned everything he could from Mr. Royer, so his mother, Fanny, and her sister, known to Hershey as Aunt Maddie— sat him down. Out of all the delicious treats at Royer's shop, Fanny noticed candy was by far the most profitable. It came in the most variations, plus candy maintained the longest shelf life. So, she decided it was time for her son to fly the confectionery coop. Between his father's entrepreneurial spirit, his mother's work ethic, and $150 from his Aunt Maddie, Hershey made a plan to open his very own candy store. And he knew exactly where to do it. In the spring of 1876, the Centennial Fair was set to be held in Philadelphia. Officially called the International Exhibition of Arts, Manufacturers, and Products of the Soil and Mine, the fair touted the wares of entrepreneurs, artists, and inventors from across the globe in celebration of America's 100th birthday. It would be the grandest fair of them all. Over 200 halls and buildings were constructed for the event, with walls spanning not feet, but miles There was a horticultural hall, an agricultural hall, a machinery hall, and let's not forget a single women's pavilion. On May 10, 1876, President Ulysses S. Grant unveiled the fair to the public, announcing it would remain a six-month fixture in Philadelphia's Fairmont Park. Throughout those six months, 10 million tourists from nearly 40 countries were expected to flood the streets of Philly, while it's open, it was a big deal, and Hershey knew it. So, on June 1st of that year, Hershey traveled to the birthplace of America and opened the Spring Garden Confectionery Works on Spring Garden Street, nice and close to the fairgrounds. Hershey's Spring Garden Confectionery was picturesque. In the front were tables and chairs. In the basement, a stove, a copper kettle, and all the contraptions one needed to make taffy. But ever the budding businessman, Hershey knew the way into his prospective customers' hearts was through their noses. So he installed a pipe that led directly from the kitchen up to street level. That way, tired, hungry fairgoers would find themselves involuntarily drawn to Hershey's candy store for a pick me up. Between the two million tourists per month visiting the fair, the 4th of July crowds, and Pennsylvania Day festivities, Hershey couldn't keep sugar on the shelves. Business was so steady, he had to recruit his mother and Aunt Maddie to help him keep up with demand. Eventually, summer's leaves fell to the ground. And soon came November, marking the end of the centennial fair. The over 200 buildings were dismantled, the signage came down, the fanfare fizzled, and the tourists went home. Local businesses braced for a barren winter. But then something unexpected happened. As the first snow fell, Hershey's sales didn't. In fact, business kept on growing, so Hershey decided to expand. He moved his store into a bigger location up the street. He started selling his candies wholesale, for which he needed a warehouse to store inventory. He hired employees. He started experimenting with new candies. Fresh flavors. And one, in particular, sold like hotcakes. Caramel. Sticky, soft, chewy caramel. Caramel. It said his customers found it irresistible. By all accounts, Hershey's business was thriving, except when it came to the accounts. Upon closer inspection, Milton Hershey hadn't been managing the money very well. Sure, he was moving product, but costs were high and ends weren't exactly meeting. It speculated this oversight could have had something to do with the fact Hershey's education was limited to the fourth grade. So, Hershey hired himself an accountant. But all he learned from his accountant was that he had even less money than he thought. And that wasn't the only problem. More and more sweet shops started popping up in the area, chipping away at his clientele. So, in a panic, Hershey tugged on the only resource he had left— his mother's family. He sent a letter to his Uncle Abraham requesting funds to tide him over, writing, Dear Uncle, I'm so sorry to bother you, but it takes so much money to run the shop, so you will greatly oblige me by sending funds as soon as possible on Monday. Well, Monday came, and so too did a check for $600. But within a few months, that $600 was well and gone. So Hershey wrote for more, this time to Uncle Ben, explaining that the money was needed to increase product volume. Meanwhile, his Aunt Maddie, who was still in Philadelphia helping her nephew wrap caramels, also made a sizable investment in the Spring Garden Confectionery. Hershey downsized where possible, and that included finding a new space that charged less rent. He stopped selling perishable sweets like cakes altogether and amazingly managed to right the ship. Then his father rolled into town. <music> the aunts and uncles that bailed Milton Hershey out financially over the previous months were the same aunts and uncles that had routinely bailed Henry Hershey out of his various misadventures since he married their sister 20 years earlier. So suffice it to say, when Henry pulled his horse and buggy up to the newly stabilized Spring Garden sweet shop that day, shoulders tensed. As biographer Michael D'Antonio tells the story, Henry walked in with big ideas of how his son could grow his business, not the least of which included installing display cabinets made by Henry himself. But those were merely to hold the pièce de résistance, cough drops, Henry's own brand of cough drops. Hershey's Aunt Maddie pleaded with him not to do business with his father. But alas, H.H. cough drops were displayed proudly on their H.H. cabinets in the window of Hershey's shop. Time passed, and when Henry Hershey's cough drops and cabinets didn't sell, he asked his son to buy out the remainder of the product. Against his better judgment, Milton Hershey obliged. And soon, Henry and his money were long gone in search of silver mines. By the early 1880s, Hershey put pen to paper yet again, asking his uncles for more money. Thanks to his father, he was looking at losing credit, losing suppliers, losing his store. But Hershey didn't hear back, so he wrote again. The stress of it all caused the 24-year-old to fall ill. He couldn't get out of bed for an entire month. Meanwhile, his Aunt Maddie filled in for him at the shop as best she could. There wasn't enough money coming in, at the store or from his family. Then, in early 1882, Hershey got the news. His uncles formally rejected Hershey's pleas for financial help. They lost faith in their nephew. That spring, big horse-pulled wagons arrived to take away what was left of Hershey's picturesque store. The tables, the chairs, the copper kettle. The once bright eyed young entrepreneur was forced to file for bankruptcy. Hershey's biography reads At 24, Milton Hershey had invested the first six years of his adult life in a business that failed. be right back.
4: Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to Quince.com pack for free shipping and 365 day returns.
0: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds.
2: Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right?
1: Over the following years, Hershey would follow his father to the silver mines in Colorado. And when that didn't pan out, he took a job at a local confectioner in Denver. Though Hershey was a seasoned candy maker by this point, he learned something new at this particular shop. That if you used fresh milk, sugar, and vanilla, it gave the caramel a sweeter, smoother consistency. Plus, it lasted longer on the shelf. Denver style, you might call it. Suddenly, Hershey was re-energized. Maybe he wasn't ready to give up on his dream of running a successful shop. He loved candy making. Denver, not so much. If he were to try again, he decided to fish where the fish are. So, in the fall of 1882, Hershey hopped a train headed northeast to New York City. Though running his own business was Hershey's dream, he was a little shaky. So he decided to first take a job at a modest candy shop. There, he learned a little about the New York market and local suppliers. New York had over 250,000 more potential customers than Philadelphia. Then one day, he stumbled upon a For Lease sign. It was in a bustling neighborhood that would one day be called Midtown. So, Hershey called his Aunt Maddie, who had always believed in him. Remember, she was the one who essentially moved from Lancaster to Philadelphia to help her nephew wrap candies until midnight every night. She was the one helping him write letters to her brothers, and she was the first investor back on Spring Garden Street. She was Hershey's best bet at financing. Aunt Maddie hopped on board. She'd seen firsthand how hard her nephew worked. She'd witnessed his determination. So together, they secured a lease on a teensy basement kitchen on 6th Avenue. By the following spring, Hershey's Candy Shop was up and running, open seven days a week, with an accountant to keep an eye on the numbers this time. In the daytime, a steady flow of locals filled the shop, In the evenings, Hershey sold his sweets to tourists heading back to their hotels after a long day of touring. His mother and Aunt Maddie arrived and were already by his side, baking, testing, and wrapping candies, until Hershey earned enough money to hire an employee or two. He rented an apartment nearby that was slowly but surely turning into a home. All was going extremely well. So, naturally up-pulled Henry Hershey. Sensing his son was doing well for himself, Henry Hershey arrived in style with a buggy full of expectations. He would, once again, sell his H.H. cough drops at M.H.'s store. And not only that, he came prepared to sell his son on the idea of purchasing elaborate equipment to make said cough drops in-house. $10,000 worth of equipment. $10,000 is a significant figure for any fledgling business. But lest we forget, we're talking about 1883 here. That money equates to roughly $300,000 in today's dollars. And against Hershey's better judgment, his mother's better judgment, his Aunt Maddie's better judgment, and despite cabinet gate 1882... Hershey took a loan out from the bank. He bought the equipment, he leased a bigger space to house the costly equipment, and he started manufacturing HH cough drops. What Hershey didn't do was his research. As fate would have it, New Yorkers already had a favorite cough drop brand to which they were unflinchingly loyal. Hershey wasn't able to pay back his loan, Then, his former landlord sued him for breaking his lease on the basement store on 6th. For a second time, Hershey was forced to close up shop and file for bankruptcy. By 1886, Milton Hershey had moved back home to Lancaster, Pennsylvania. He was 28 years old, but it's written he looked much, much older, the heartbreak of his failures written across his face. The tricky part was, until he let his father sour the business, his New York store was doing well. Up until that point, he was doing everything right, and he knew he still could. So, in spite of it all, Hershey decided to shelve his shame and ask his family for financial backing one last time. He would open a small store in Lancaster, a place he knew in his bones, a place whose clientele had known his family for years, a place he'd channel all the knowledge he'd gained. He walked five miles to his mother's family's imposing farmstead outside the city. He sat his aunts and uncles down and proposed his plan. Present among his aunts and uncles was Hershey's biggest ally, Aunt Maddie. She and her brothers listened to their nephew's proposal. But Hershey's uncle Abraham turned him down. Then his uncle Ben. Then Aunt Maddie. Biographer Michael D'Antonio writes, They had finally decided that Fanny's boy was too much Henry Hershey's son, and they wouldn't risk any more money on his dreams. For the first time in his life, Milton Hershey was without the support of his mother's family. Hershey would later say that it was in that moment of rejection he realized he had become the Black Sheep. With the pennies Hershey had left, he rented a small room inside a warehouse in Lancaster. And a determined, albeit bruised, Hershey decided he wasn't ready to give up. So Hershey started making his smooth caramels and selling them from a little basket on the street. It was a far cry from the midtown Manhattan business he'd once built. But eventually, he made enough money to upgrade his basket to a push cart. Noticing his commitment, and maybe even his humility... Hershey's biggest cheerleaders, his mother and Aunt Maddie, soon came to lend him a hand, doing what they'd done in every iteration of the young caramel maker's career. They cooked, cooled, and wrapped his candies. But soon Hershey outgrew his pushcart, and he realized if he wanted to upgrade past the street corner, he'd need a copper kettle to make his caramels in bulk. And to buy a copper kettle, he needed cash. $700 to be exact. So he went to the city bank, but the bank rejected Hershey outright. If Hershey was loyal to candy making, Aunt Maddie was loyal to Hershey. And once again, she decided to make her nephew an offer. She would co sign a 90 day loan with the bank. A lifeline. Hershey gladly accepted her offer. But the question then became, how would he pay it back? 90 days became 60 days, then 30, and Hershey was nowhere close to amassing the $700 required. He needed a miracle. And just then, an English businessman passing through Lancaster followed his sweet tooth all the way to Hershey's little operation. And for the Brit, it was love at first taste. He needed to bring whatever he just tasted back home with him to England. By this point, Hershey had perfected his Denver-style caramel recipe. New customers were used to sticky, taffy-like cubes. But Hershey's were smooth. The extra milk made them sweet and buttery. And luckily, they had the shelf life to cross the pond. So, the band promptly placed a sizable order of Hershey's caramels. It would be enough to pay back Hershey's loan. A miracle. Except now Hershey needed even more money to fill the order. Hershey marched over to Lancaster National Bank and requested they expand his loan by $1,000, which would bring it to a grand total of $1,700. As Michael D'Antonio tells the story, it quickly became apparent to Hershey that he wasn't dealing with the top brass at the bank that day. The old-school sticklers for the rules must have been out to lunch. Instead, he got a young bank teller, one with a more elastic approach to loan criteria. When said young bank teller figured Hershey wasn't an ideal candidate for a loan, Hershey asked if he'd humor him and walk down the street to take a look at his operation. Hershey warned him it wasn't much, but his business depended on this money. And soon, the pair was off to see where the magic happened. It's recorded the bank teller said that magic was a small shed full of dust, dirt, and racket, and there were only two employees, the proprietor's mother and his aunt. The teller didn't know what to say, so before he left, he told Hershey to meet him at the bank the next day. Promptly, the next morning, Hershey arrived at the bank, where the teller had been pacing the floor. He told Hershey he'd come to a decision. He knew his bosses would reject Hershey's request to increase the loan. So, he would lend Hershey the thousand extra dollars. Personally. He later explained he liked that Hershey didn't try to sugarcoat his situation. He admired his honesty. To get the order to England, it needed to be prepared quick enough that it would arrive on time, despite the seven-day journey across the Atlantic. And, after arriving, they had to still factor in extra time for the customer's check to then make its way back across the pond to Lancaster, all before Hershey's loan came due. So Hershey... Fanny and Aunt Maddie worked tirelessly to get the wholesale order filled, a near-impossible task without the elaborate equipment of his prior stores. So Hershey hired extra help, putting himself even further into debt. The team worked day and night, cooking, cooling, and testing batches to perfection. Then, when Hershey was satisfied with the quality, wrapping, boxing, and sending them off to a mammoth steamship. Then, all they could do was wait. As time passed, Hershey started to worry. What if the unlikely passerby from England wasn't legit? After all, what did Hershey really know about him? Not to mention, Hershey had three people's hard-earned money tied up in this deal. Aunt Maddie's, the bank teller's, and his own. His 90-day loan with Lancaster National Bank was due in a matter of days. And for all Hershey knew, he'd just sent boxes of product across the world to an unreachable stranger, never to be heard from again. But just when all hope felt lost, a letter came in the mail addressed to one Milton Hershey. And inside was a check in British pounds. Hershey was able to pay off every dollar of his debt, on time. And that's not all. The client was so happy with the quality and timeliness of his order, he requested to become a regular customer, placing an indefinite order on wholesale caramels. And with that, Hershey had a bona fide business. He called it the Lancaster Caramel Company. (music) As Michael D'Antonio writes, Hershey realized despite all his attempts to get out of Lancaster and open a store in a bustling metropolis, Lancaster turned out to be the best place for his company. It afforded him plenty of space to grow his operations while maintaining easy access to those major cities, New York, Philadelphia, Washington. But it wasn't just in those cities that he started seeing steady growth sales in Europe started to take off. And with the permission of his trusty accountant, Hershey expanded operations into a large factory space in Lancaster. Over the next five years, his staff increased from 10 to 50, then 100. And soon he was employing 700 workers to make his caramels, not to mention local dairy farmers his factory operated in an early iteration of the production line model, rows of copper kettles boiling caramel to the ideal consistency, and checked by full-time testers. Soon he was opening more caramel factories, operational 24 hours a day. Hershey said he was selling caramels faster than he could make them. And by 1893 the Lancaster Caramel Company reached $1 million in sales. Then one day that same year, Milton Hershey decided to attend the Columbian Exposition in Chicago, another World Fair. He perused the many European exhibits, and one by a German entrepreneur caught his eye, or more accurately, his nose. The man's factory Turned raw cocoa beans into chocolate bars. What Hershey didn't know was that in Europe, chocolate was huge. And that's when he had an epiphany. Caramels were too rich to eat every day. They were more of a treat. But chocolate, chocolate could be enjoyed anytime. In the late 19th century, chocolate was considered a luxury by North American standards, but Hershey saw no good reason it couldn't be accessible to the masses. In 1894, Milton Hershey founded a subsidiary of the Lancaster Caramel Company called the Hershey Chocolate Company. And for two full years, he experimented, determined to create his own unique formula in secret. Meanwhile, the caramel market experienced a marked decline in sales. But Hershey wasn't surprised, nor was he concerned. Chocolate was the next big thing. More specifically, milk chocolate. And milk was Hershey's specialty. In fact, Hershey was so specific about his milk, he bought his own dairy farm to have full control over what his cows ate and drank to produce the best-tasting milk. He even hired watchmen to guard his dairy cows from rival spies. And in the year 1900, Hershey sold the Lancaster Caramel Company for $1 million. That same year, he sold his first chocolate bar. By 1902, Hershey's milk chocolate sales were growing rapidly, jumping 20% in just one year and crossing the $500,000 mark. By 1904, Hershey's chocolate sales topped $1 million, and Hershey began constructing a mammoth factory to make his chocolate bars, employing hundreds of local townsmen. By 1905... Hershey purchased 1,200 acres of land near Lancaster and began constructing an entire community surrounding his factory for his workers, complete with homes, parks, public transportation, schools, and an orphanage, a utopian town that would become known as Hershey, Pennsylvania. By 1906, Hershey's five-cent chocolate bars became not only the best-selling chocolate in the country— but the confectioner's journal wrote there's more of Hershey's milk chocolate sold than all other domestic brands combined by 1912 sales reached 5 million dollars then 10 million then 20 by 1944 sales reached 80 million dollars and the following year Milton Hershey passed away he was 88 years old Today, Hershey's chocolates are sold in 70 countries. The Hershey Company is the largest manufacturer of chocolate in North America, employing nearly 20,000 people, producing 70 million Hershey Kisses per day, with over 90 brands under its giant chocolate umbrella. You can find Hershey's headquarters located at 19 East Chocolate Avenue, Hershey, Pennsylvania. Mere miles from the farmland where Fanny Snavely Hershey once stripped her neighbor's dairy cows to feed her family. Knowing firsthand how it felt to grow up underprivileged, Hershey set up a school in his town before he passed, offering free tuition to all students. But Hershey also set up a trust in its name, ensuring the Hershey Company fund the school in perpetuity. The Milton Hershey School remains an 80% shareholder in the Hershey Empire to this day. And as of this writing, the brand started by a man who filed for bankruptcy twice, lost the faith of his family, was turned down by bankers, and told by his father that candy-making was beneath him, is worth exactly $50.7 billion. U.S. dollars. Pretty sweet.
2: When a young Milton Hershey left home to make his way in the world, his mother said something to him that he never forgot. She said... When you tackle a job, stick to it until you have won the battle. It would inform Milton Hershey for the rest of his days. That advice came from a painful place, as his mother watched her husband stick to nothing. So many times Milton ran out of money. So many times he had to go back to his family for loans. And so many times his family watched him lose it all, again and again. But he kept going. Because when you have a dream in your heart, you're never alone. When he failed, he swallowed his pride and began all over again. He was willing to take lowly jobs at small confectioners to learn and survive. Even when his family finally lost faith in him, the ultimate disgrace... Milton Hershey pushed through his shame... and sold caramels out of a basket in Lancaster. That was a long, long way from owning a store in Manhattan. But you have to lose before you can win. Milton got smarter with each failure. His stomach absorbed the rejections. His heart wouldn't let him quit. In the year 1900, he sold his first chocolate bar... By 1906, Hershey was the nation's best-selling chocolate. And nearly 80 years since Milton Hershey passed away, Hershey still has the largest market share of any chocolate company in the country. Milton Hershey tasted a lot of failure before he ever tasted success. He once said, You must have a reasonable optimism. It's the force that makes the world go round. True words. Optimism isn't a yearning, it is a force. Because so many times, the key isn't to start, it's to start over. Never, ever give up.
0: And made by the Hershey Company today. Reese's. Rollo. Kit Kat. Milk Duds. Whoppers. Almond Joy. Twizzlers. Icebreakers. Score. Jolly Ranchers. Hershey Kisses. And Hershey's Milk Chocolate Bars.
1: The Rejection Podcast is an Apostrophe Podcast production and is recorded in our Airstream mobile recording studio. We regret to inform you, this series is hosted and written by me, Sydney O'Reilly. Research, Allison Pinches. Our director is Callie O'Reilly. Engineer, Jeff Devine. Producer, Debbie O'Reilly. Our theme music is by Ian LaFever and Ari Posner. The major source for this episode is Hershey by Michael D'Antonio. Other sources for this and all episodes are listed in the show notes on our website, apostrophepodcasts.ca slash rejection. If you enjoyed this episode, give Rejecting Charles Schultz a listen from Season 2. If you do or have ever suffered from anxiety, you may see a little of yourself in this episode. Follow our network on social at apostrophepod. This series is executive produced by Terry O'Reilly. See you next time.